This is Downtown, the podcast. Welcome. From the spacious Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine, Rich Kimball here, along with Carrie Haskell. Downtown, the podcast is presented by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. Episode 7 of the podcast, and uh, uh, Carrie, we don't throw around the word legend too lightly, but this week on the program... There's no question we're dealing with some legendary people in the world of entertainment and guests, Carl Reiner, William Daniels, and Bonnie Bartlett. Yeah, these people have been around for 50, 60 years in the entertainment field. Just amazing to get a chance to talk with them. Absolutely. And uh, these are a dip into the fairly recent archives of the Downtown Show, which airs every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on WZON in Bangor, WKIT HD3, streaming audio on our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. And you can download the WZON app to check out everything we do. On the podcast, we feature some of our favorite interviews, and these are certainly two of our favorite we've ever done. We had a chance to catch up with Carl Reiner, who in his mid-90s says, in addition to everything else he's done in his career, from writing for your show of shows with Sid Caesar to creating The Dick Van Dyke Show to directing films like The Jerk and many more, he's become a prolific author in recent years. And also uh, featured in a wonderful documentary about uh, fellow folks in their 90s who continue to thrive. Here's our conversation with Carl Reiner on Downtown the Podcast. So many wonderful people in the film, including uh, your great friend Mel Brooks, Dick Van Dyke, Norman Lear, Betty White. I'm wondering, Mr. Reiner, if the key to longevity might be being your friend. No, the key to longevity is having to get up, having something to do after you get up. That's the whole key. Being interested in something, and of course the genes that give you uh, uh, the the health and the health and the wherewithal to uh, be able to continue to function. Now I caught a clip of you on the Today Show uh, doing some of your morning workout routine. Pretty impressed with your flexibility. I'm uh, I'm about three decades younger, and I don't think I could do that. No, as a matter of fact, you can, and start doing them. Uh, at the beginning of that other book, uh, what's it called, 90-something, uh, Paul Reiner in 94 or something, um, uh, I recommend it highly. Uh, I, I hurt myself when I was about 30, uh, 30 or something. I fell down a flight of stairs, and the therapist says, don't get out of bed until you do these stretches. And for 50 years, I do not get out of bed until I do the stretches. He's, once you get out of bed, you'll... You'll never go back to do them. And as a matter of fact, I fell down a flight of steps a few months ago on my way to do the Conan show, and I, I picked myself right up, and I said, the reason I didn't hurt myself is that I, my, my, uh, I'm still limber enough. Uh, muscles still react. Uh, your newest book, and, and you've been a pretty prolific writer over the last few years. The new one is entitled Too Busy to Die, and it's got some reminiscences, some short stories, and I understand the title of that came from your friend Mel Brooks. Yes, I had just finished uh, a series of bios, one called I Remember Me, the one is uh, I Just Remembered, and the third one was called uh, What I Forgot to Remember. Mel Brooks gave me that title, as a matter of fact, the last one. What I forgot to remember, and I, when I finished it, I said to him, what do I do now? And he said to me, too busy to die, and I wrote a book. <laughs> Have you had any more dreams of uh, the late newscaster, H.V. Kaltenborn? 
Oh no! Isn't that fun? That was that was another book. Yeah, I happened to uh, to uh, actually meet him on a program once, and uh, he actually said that Hitler. He says there's a side of Hitler nobody knew about. He was so kind to his dog. He loved his German. <laughs> <laughs> there's a picture of petting his German Shepherd. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. Well, you mentioned your. And I said to him, "Did he notice? Did anybody? Did Mister Calvo notice he also killed, killed six million Jews and sixty million people?" <laughs> um, you mentioned your your long term friendship with Mel Brooks, and you guys uh, met on your show of shows. That show was such a formative part of of your life and your career, and it was also such a formative part of so many other people. Was there something about that show that sort of forged all of you for, for the careers that you Absolutely. ended up in? Absolutely. There's no question about it. First of all, it was headed by maybe the best comedian that ever lived, Sid Caesar, as a sketch comedian, and Ed Liber of stuff while we're on the air, making more fun that was in this than in the script. And also, the idea of the show being pulled together by Max Liebman was probably the only man alive who would have come was able to do a weekly show, and it's only because he was a tamament doing shows, uh, those kind of reviews in the mountains. And he did the the people used to come up for three week vacation, so he had to have three different shows. So he got the idea that you 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 know you have to have different shows, and with that he got the idea that you had to do thirty nights shows a year, and he, he got the wherewithal to do it, and he got the writers. He, as a matter of fact, some of the writers were with him on, on, at Tamament. We're talking with Kyle Reiner here on Downtown. Uh, is it safe to say, and I, I gather this from reading a number of your books, that your your best advisor, the person who gave you the best advice through the years, was your wife, Estelle? No question about it. From the very beginning, when I uh, came home from the Army, I was a teletypist in the Signal Corps, and I wanted to see if I could still type one day. I went to the cellar, typed up a page, showed it to my wife, and said, where'd you get this? I said, I wrote it. Really? I, she was surprised. It was a little short story. I went and wrote, every day I wrote, in about a week or three, I woke, I wrote 13 short stories, and I figured I'd make a book of short stories, and I gave it to a friend to read, and he thought they were good, he gave it to somebody else, and... This guy came to me one day. He said, I'd like to have lunch with you. I read your stories. think they're very good. And he was, uh, my friend was a textile manufacturer. And he made, uh, and I, the other guy was, said he was in pocketbooks. And I thought, he does, buys linings, or, you know, <laughs> material for linings for his pocketbooks. He says, no, no, he's in real pocketbooks from Simon and Schuster. And so I, I, I met with him and he said, uh, these stories are wonderful. He said, but, you know, he says, novels sell better. I remember going home and I said, he wants me to write a novel. I don't know write a novel. I don't have enough words. I said, I only went to uh, Georgetown University for a year during the Army days. And my wife said, in her infinite wisdom, she said, you have something more important than words. You have feelings. With that, I wrote my first novel, uh, Until Laughing. And then you also uh, documented your own life uh, in many ways as a writer on your show of shows in Caesar's Hour. That became a pilot entitled Head of the Family that, that starred you 
Yeah, right. And can you tell the story, the great story of what the producer Sheldon Leonard said to you about it? I will. I've told this so many times, but I love telling it. Uh, the the uh, I wrote when I was after the show shows ended. Uh, the review format disappeared until Carol Burnett brought it back years later, and situation comedies were being offered. And again, it was my wife who said, uh, I, I said, these are not very good, the ones they were offering me. And she said, why don't you write one? And I, I, I remember being on the West Side Drive, Franklin Roosevelt Drive, when I actually spoke to myself. I said, Ryan, what piece of ground do you stand on that nobody else stands on? I said, well, you live in New Rochelle and you work in New York. Write about that. So I wrote about the home life of, and the working life of a writer. And it became the Dick Van. It became head of the family, which didn't sell when I made a pile of it. And uh, I, I was, I had written thirteen episodes, and I figured they were dead. But my agent, who was bothered that gold was lying on his desk, offered them to Sheldon Leonard and Danny Thomas, and they brought me in. And they, and I said, fellas, they said they love the show. I said, fellas, I don't want to fail with the same material twice. And Sheldon Leonard said, you won't fail or get a better actor to play you. <laughs> that was a good impression of him. And he suggested Dick Van Dyke, and I went to New York, saw him in Bye Bye Birdie, and saw maybe the most talented man that ever existed. <laughs> what did you see in Mary Tyler Moore that you knew America would fall in love with? Well, you know, I've told this story, and it's absolutely true. She walked into my office. I'd seen 23 girls looking for her, looking for Laura Petrie. And I told Sheldon, I said, I don't know what I'm looking for. He said, you'll know when you'll find her. And one day, after 23 girls, she walks in, and she was reluctant to come. She said she had failed at a couple auditions that week and didn't want to fail again. As soon as she walked through the door, I looked at her. I gave her a piece of paper to read, one of the first lines. She read one word. One line, uh, where have you been, or whatever it was, and I heard a what I called a ping in her voice, and I said, "Wow, this girl's got something." And, I, and then, of course, you know, and what was very apparent was that beautiful head of hair with a smile that didn't stop, you know, lips, and then those beautiful legs she stood on. I said, and I realized I'd found her. So I made my hand into a claw, like they do at the at the. Uh, <laughs> You know, the uh, amusement box, they have these machines that pick up candy. I made my hand into a claw like a uh, shovel, and I grabbed the top of her head, and I said, come with me. I walked her across the, the, the hall and took her to Sheldon Leonard's office, opened my claw, and I dropped it. She said, I found her to her right. That was the meeting with Mary. You did a number of movies with Steve Martin. Don't you think it's a little unfair that that guy is so talented in so many different areas? Yeah, man. Steve, uh, Steve is really a genius. He got an AFI award, and all the people who come to talk about him were talking about different aspects of his talent. First of all, he was, as a writer, I don't think there's a better uh, autobiography written than uh, Born Standing Up. It's, it's exquisite. If you haven't read it, it's... It's as good as any you'll ever read. Plus the fact he's a, more knowledgeable about art than most people. And then his curators go to him to talk about art. He owned art. He uh, 
so many interests that, uh, you know, the funny thing is, he called me one day, not too long ago, and he said, tell Dick Van Dyke that I think he's the single most talented man who ever lived in show business. And I told Dick, that's true, you know, Dick is, can do anything. But those two guys in, in different areas are the best. They, and that was one of the most fortunes of my life, to work with those two guys. What was the uh, what was the genesis of that collaboration with Steve Martin? Because you guys did a series of movies together. Well, we had so much fun doing the jerk that uh, uh, we immediately we started thinking about what else to do, and we came up with a couple: the man with two brains, and uh, and uh, and then and the big one that I adored was Deadman Don't Wear Plaid. I had more fun doing that as. It was that was a labor of love, absolutely labor of love. You've written so many books in recent years, and they're all wonderful collections of stories, everything from stories to uh, reminiscences to even a play. Uh, in I believe, in I just remembered, uh, is that just on memory, or have you have you kept a journal through the years? No, I don't. It's, it's in my head. Uh, there are things that I've done that uh, make me very excited. One of them is. I wrote a play once called Something Different. Something popped into my head. Oh, I know what it was. This was really crazy. I was uh, doing television at the time, and we're off for the summer. And Oh, Steve, and uh, uh, Dick Van Dyke was doing uh, a series or something. What was it? I forget who. And I had nothing to write. And my secretary said, we have nothing to type. She always used to retype my bad my bad type. <laughs> I wrote a, I wrote a uh, page of something. I handed it to her. She, she typed it up, and she started to giggle. I said, what are you giggling? I said, it's funny. Next few days, I wrote a few more pages, and within six weeks, I had written a show called Something Different. And within three months, it was on Broadway. It was one of the, it was one of the funniest things I've ever, ever, ever written. Uh, you are very active and a, and a wonderful follow on Twitter. Uh, not everybody's out there on social media. What was it about that platform that attracted you as a way to express your thoughts on what's happening in our country? I don't know. I think it started with um, having to say something uh, true about Trump. I don't know what started it. But <laughs> as soon as I saw it was there, I like, uh, before going to bed every night, I, I tweet something and uh, I get fun doing it. And a lot of feedback, an awful lot of feedback these days, especially my anti-Trumpism. <laughs> well, I think the two leaders in the clubhouse for that are you and the owner of our station, Stephen King. Oh, really? Yes, that's right. He, Trump, isn't he? he is a pretty vocal critic as well. I have to ask you, Mr. Reiner, because uh, you've also, with your friend Mel Brooks, you've been on kind of a, a personal mission from what I understand. Have you removed all of the chicken feathers from those pillows in your home? No, no, no. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, uh, I did some last night. I, I can only do it if people visit me and sit on the, on the, on the, uh, the couch and lean against it and mush them around a little. It takes a little doing, and it's a, it's a therapeutic. I really think it's uh, kept me alive. <laughs> that is the great and amazing Carl Reiner here on Downtown the Podcast. Coming up, we talk with uh, another star of television, films, 
along with his uh, equally talented wife, who's been on Broadway and television series as well. William Daniels and Bonnie Bartlett are coming up after this quick word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Five years ago, two friends teamed up to create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing. And with that, Nice Brewing Company was born. Based in Limerick, Maine, in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combine their love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Whether it's the Nice Weiss, the Sun and Shine, IPAs, Porters, Stouts, any of their seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice. Ask for beers from Nice at your favorite restaurant or bar. Work hard, play hard, be nice. German-style beer from the woods of Maine. That is the theme song from the classic television show, St. Elsewhere. One of the greatest shows in the history of TV. Also led to an historic event when husband and wife William Daniels and Bonnie Bartlett won Emmy Awards for the same show on the same night. Uh, Bill Daniels and Bonnie Bartlett have been acting for uh, the better part of seven decades. For Bill, uh, from appearances on Broadway to appearing as Dustin Hoffman's father in The Graduate, his work on St. Elsewhere, and then to younger generations, his work on Boy Meets World. Bonnie Bartlett also on Broadway, film work, with Bill and St. Elsewhere and occasional appearances on Boy Meets World. They're still together and going strong, as we found out when we had a chance to talk with William Daniels and Bonnie Bart. It certainly seems like the process of writing this book about your life has uh, caused you to certainly reevaluate some things, starting with the experiences you had in your childhood. Yes, that's true. Uh, I thought I should start there because that's when my sister and I started, my sister and I uh, started performing. Very young. Well, and it seems that you discovered as well that uh, the ambivalence that you you uh, seem to have at times about acting was not that at all, but perhaps a defense mechanism. Um, yes, that's possible. Yes, because uh, I I didn't know exactly uh, we were put into the business really early, but I thought I wanted to do something other than that. But I had a stage mother who uh, had ambitions for both me and my sisters in show business. And uh, so we all went along with that. Well, and that led you to be on Broadway at a very early age uh, in Life with Father. And uh, in that opportunity that you had in that show, you also met someone that became a real role model for you. Can you talk about the impact that Howard Lindsay had on you? Yes, uh, he, um, I saw him um, getting ready to return to the role of life, uh, of father, in Life with Father, after having been out for, I don't know, six or six months or a year. He and Miss Stickney uh, were coming back into the play, so uh, they were doing a brush-up uh, rehearsing, and I got a chance to uh, 
uh, be with them as I was going from assistant stage manager into the the uh, second oldest uh, child. Uh, there were four children, and uh, so I had an opportunity to uh, to work with him, uh, breaking into the role, which was very helpful. And in the meantime, um, me observing his. Uh, Deportment off stage as well as on, uh, it, it became a role model for me. Because Bill, Bill was just a kid from Brooklyn. Yeah, very Brooklynese dad. Yeah, right. And so, uh, you know, I I think I wrote in the book that I asked advice of him, and he directed me in the right direction. Uh, following some time in the military, you found your way to Northwestern University, and that was an interesting path. Can you can you tell the story of uh, trying to make sure that you had the proper grades and the qualifications to enter college? Ah, uh, yes, yes. Uh, didn't I write that in the book? Yes, that's, he wants you to go over that. Oh, I see. Uh, Mr. Lodge, his name was, and he had an apartment on about 54th street in Manhattan, and, uh, you know, he had a small group of uh, uh, young performers who were performing, uh, you know, uh, at the time, and uh, I was performing at the time, but I went there, and it was just kind of a cover for the law, really, to uh, have uh, some education, Uh, and uh, so I went, you know, and I'd check in. And then I'd say, well, uh, you know, excuse me, I have an appointment. And then I'd go down to Nestle's or someplace and have coffee and read my New York Times. So I wasn't taking that uh, education very seriously. And uh, I probably missed out on important things I should have learned. But I'm not sure I would have learned them there because (laughs) the whole place was just a cover for the law, really. And... uh, Oh, what was it, Bonnie? Uh, I was going to Northwestern, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you had applied there. To Northwestern. To Northwestern, and they they, they called Mr. Lodge. Yes, they called uh, Mr. Lodge uh, about my grades, and uh, <clears throat> he hadn't kept any record of that, and he called me and he said, well, you know, Bill, we had a fire. He made up this whole story, uh, and uh, your grades were—you know—we lost all of that information on all the students. And I said, "That's terrible, Miss Love." She said, "Do you remember any of your grades?" <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I think I do. Uh, what do you? What do you need? So we went down a whole list of things. Half of them I never had, uh, and I gave myself like I didn't want to get too greedy, but. You know, 90 to 92, right in there, uh, which I probably never earned. But he wrote it all down and sent it back to the high school of music and art, and oh, I mean, at uh, Northwestern. And uh, I got I got to Northwestern that way. Uh, I was a fraud, actually. <laughs> and uh, there I met a very interesting girl who sits across the way from me right now, who helped me. Uh, to learn how to study, how to uh, underline important things that when you review, you don't have to review the whole thing. It's just the things you underlined which were important to ready yourself for an exam. Uh, so she really uh, got me through the whole uh, thing in three and a half years because she was very anxious to get to New York. 
And that was Bonnie. And uh, so I went along, and uh, we went to New York together. Yeah, even though, uh, Bonnie, if I, if I remember correctly from the book, when he first asked you out for coffee, you said no because he wasn't tall enough. I said, you're too short. Yeah. <laughs> she said, you're too short. And I said, uh, oh, come on, have some coffee. She said, okay. And uh, I, 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 What uh, I really meant was that I was too tall for him. <laughs> In other words, I wasn't being critical of him being too short, but I just thought it was not appropriate because I was as tall as he was, and I'm supposed. I kind of thought I all the men in my family were six feet. I thought I should be with somebody six feet tall. Well, and sixty was not that sixty six <laughs> years now. Do you think it will work out? <laughs> uh, I could have tried elevated shoes, but I don't know if they made them that high. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Well, so we, anyway. never, we never expected anything. We were not that romantic. At least I wasn't. We never expected to be together this long. No way. <laughs> we are talking with William Daniels and uh, Bonnie Bartlett here on Downtown. In New York, uh, you had a chance, Bonnie, to study with the legendary Lee Strasberg, and, uh, and Bill just kind of hung along, uh, hung around and observed early on. Is that right? That's right. He didn't really believe in acting teachers that much, and he, nor did my father, who had been an actor. And uh, I, of course, I, I just, as soon as, I didn't know who Lee Strasberg was, but as soon as I went into his class, I thought, oh, my God, this is wonderful. i got to learn how to do this, you know, because I had always just acted, just acted as I felt and imitated and acted and, and it's, he, he teaches behavior. And so when you learn to behave on stage, whew, it's all, all the world is different. And I just followed her to the, cat, uh, to the class just to keep tabs on her because, you know, she was going off and rehearsing with some guy in his apartment. I didn't know what was going on, so I, had a, <laughs> I didn't believe you learned acting. Uh, I believe that you learned it on the boards, as they used to say. Acting on the boards, meaning, uh, you know, actual theater. Uh, and uh, I soon learned differently because Lee Strasberg uh, stripped me of that nonsense, and uh, and he was very instrumental in both our lives. There, there's an interesting story in the book, and a sad one, too, about uh, you uh, observing a conversation with Marilyn Monroe at one of the parties uh, when... Folks were talking with you, Bonnie. What was the comment that Marilyn made? She stood in back of me as I was talking to a very kind of intellectual director, young, you know, and um, he was explaining how he would do a certain production, and I was sitting, I was standing talking to him, very serious, and she came and stood in back of me. She did trust me, and we got along. Anyway, and she stood in back of me. She said, I just want to feel what it's like to be talked to like an intelligent person. Wow. That was sad. Uh, Bill, let's talk about Zoo Story, Edward Albee's uh, first hit, a one-act play that uh, became a sensation. What did that opportunity do for your career? That opportunity? Uh, Well, it led to other things, actually. Uh, uh, You know, uh, I got a couple of awards, and... uh, and it put me on the a map in New York. Everybody came to see it. I mean, just about everybody. And it was Edward's first play, and it was a huge hit. And so I, uh, you know, 
things led from that. For instance, A Thousand Clowns, uh, Herb Gardner saw, saw the zoo story, and he wrote A Thousand Clowns and wrote a part in it that he uh, wanted me to do. And so one thing led to another thing, and A Thousand Clowns led to other things. And, it, you know, it, it, it really, the zoo story really got me started in New York. Uh, the first Broadway musical I ever had the pleasure of seeing was 1776, a remarkable production. And uh, not only in that role, but in others, the Adams family has been very good to you, Bill. Oh, I have a corner on the Adams. <laughs> uh, uh, you, you saw 1776 with me in it? I did. Oh, oh good. Anyway, that was a, that was a wonderful role for me, uh, probably the largest role I ever uh, had and I played it for a long time, probably too long. But uh, anyway, uh, it was a highlight in my uh, career when I think about it. And John Adams became kind of second nature to me. I uh, I, I had a certain uh, certain personality traits that I could use in that, and they translated pretty well into John Adams. <laughs> I was yes. Yes, and dislike. <laughs> I was surprised to learn in the book uh, the length of the contract that you signed to play John Adams, something that would be unheard of today. Oh, unheard of, yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, and that's a good thing, too, because uh, these actors shouldn't be stay in, in something that long. I only did because they doubled my salary for the second year, so I... I stayed in it too long, but I made some money. Uh, then uh, Hollywood beckoned, and you made uh, a movie that's become uh, well, one of the most important movies and acclaimed movies of all time, The Graduate. Mike Nichols, uh, a hot director at the time, coming off Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. But originally, Mike Nichols didn't want you to play the part of Benjamin's dad. He didn't? Yeah. Well, that's not true. No, that's not true. Uh, what happened, well, he wanted me in the picture. Right, but didn't... All these actors from New York in the picture. They're all from New York, including Dustin. But uh, the uh, the producer said, Bill, you know, uh, Dustin's playing this role, and, uh, uh, you know, I, you're too young to play his father. Mm. Uh, there was about a nine or ten year difference between us, uh, Dustin and myself. And Mike Nichols said, no, no, that doesn't matter. And he dismissed that. But it is true that he originally offered you the part of the clerk. Oh, yeah. And he, you said, that's he, not big enough. <laughs> he offered me that, and I turned it down. And he called me, and he said, uh, why did you? I said, it's too small, Mike. And he said, it's got two laughs. I said, I know that. But, uh, you know, say, so he said, well, how about one of the fathers? Well, that's a whole different thing, you know. I, had a, I said, well, let me go back and look at it. And I did, and it was a, a substantial part. And so that's the way I, I worked for Mike in that. Did you have any idea? A great guy. While, while making that movie, did any of you have an idea? Could you have known uh, how important this film would be really in the history of cinema? Oh yeah, no, nobody knows anything like that uh, in any uh, of the, uh, uh, you know, any of the uh, uh, theatrical uh, endeavors. Uh, I've been involved in them as an assistant director to Jerome Robbins. Uh, nobody knows what you've got until you put it in front of an audience, really. Uh, and uh, some have a, 
a more of a talent and instinct for something that might work successfully. But honestly, you can't tell uh, what you've got until you go in front of an audience. Uh, that meant that uh, Hollywood beckoned and, and it meant a move. And Bonnie, that wasn't a move you were excited about making. No, I loved New York. And I didn't want to leave. And he had all these offers. And I thought, this is crazy to leave now, Bill, because now you finally, you know, John Adams, you're, you're, you're the star of the show. And now you've been offered, Bob Fosse's offered just something somebody else's offered. What, 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 how can you possibly leave now? He said, I don't want to work in the theater anymore. I want to go out to California and live a more normal life. So, you know, eight a week, I did an awful lot of that. And it's, you know. And it was great. It turned out great. But yeah. I was very much opposed. I wanted my boys to go to school in New York. And uh, actually, it worked out great coming here. So I was totally wrong about that. Well, let's talk about the, the working one thing after another uh, with these agents uh, that I was with, and uh, you know, introduced her to them, and they sent her out, and she got everything they ever sent her out on. Well, yes, you. Not only that, it was good for the family because Bill was here. He was here all the time. Right, and and, and uh, able even during St. Elsewhere, uh, you were able to keep uh, relatively normal hours. Absolutely, absolutely. Because we were right neck down from the studio, well, and uh, it was it was it was wonderful. So we we've, we've always been able to be close with our with our kids, and that's really important. Let's talk about Saint Elsewhere, a wonderful series. The roles of uh, Mark and Ellen Craig that uh, brought you such acclaim, becoming uh, only the second couple ever to win Emmy Awards for the same role uh, for the same show on the same night, uh, and that was an incredible feat. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, that was very exciting. I mm-hmm. must say that was very exciting. A wonderful show. We were so proud of that show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although, Bill, when you when you won that first Emmy award, you almost missed getting the Emmy because the limo broke down. Is that right? Yeah, the limo broke down, and uh, I, I I was watching McEnroe play tennis, and I had to get into a monkey suit and get into a limo. And we get up on uh, the 101 here, and the limo breaks down, and I got out of the car and walked home and turned on the McEnroe match. And uh, Bonnie came back in another limo, which they sent out for her. And uh, here I was, and uh, I had taken off the monkey suit and everything in my shorts, watching John McEnroe. I was a great fan of his and to play tennis. And uh, she said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm watching John. And she said, get get back in your clothes. I said, funny. She said, get back in your clothes. And I had my de- uh, hair done. I, I bought a special dress. And I said, okay, okay, okay. So I got back in the monkey suit. We got in the car. And by now we're late. You know, the whole thing has started. So we creep in there, go down the aisle and find our place that we're supposed to say, excuse me, dear, excuse me, dear, excuse me. And I go, you know, bumping knees down to where we're supposed to sit. And just as I sit, they said, uh, William Daniels. And I thought, oh, my God, I, I won this thing. Uh, <laughs> and I said, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And I walked down the aisle and I thought, what the hell am I going to say? I can't think of what I'm going to say. Well, how about thank you? Maybe that'll do. Uh, so uh, that's the way it happened. We almost missed the damn thing. 
Let's talk about Boy Meets World. Bill, people think Bill is elegant. He's not elegant. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he talks about monkey suits, and he talks about, you know. <laughs> we, we turned down so many invitations, it's terrible, but that's, that's, it's okay with me, too. But, but it's, uh, he's just not part of that society <laughs> of, uh, you know, uh, of uh, what? What do I call red carpet people? He can't stand it. So let's talk about Boy Meets World. And you got to play husband and wife uh, yet again. And uh, when I'm not on the radio, I'm a high school teacher. And so thank you for your insistence, Bill, on on not playing Mr. Feeney strictly as a comedic character. Yes, yes, it was important to me not to make fun of teachers. And so and he respected that. And so he uh, he wrote a decent part uh, with, uh, you know, respect. And uh, it turned out very well, actually. And it's kind of amazing, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful role model. And you know something? I think one of the uh, reasons, maybe, that, that all of a sudden there's been a kind of resurgence in popularity could be that, you know, we need role models now, particularly with a president who is such a terrible role model. And uh, so uh, I think it's kind of, Strangely nice that uh, people respected Mr. Feeney so much and love Mr. Feeney and feel that he's taught them a lot, and it's maybe turned people to respecting teachers a little more. We got a lot of mail that uh, expressed what she's saying about the part. Uh, Bill, are you surprised, too, uh, with the affection that people continue to feel for your voice role as a kit in Knight Rider? You know, I, you know, that was one of the f- first of those uh, shows where there's a car that speaks. I thought that was insane, and uh, uh, I, the producer I had worked with uh, doing a movie of the week, and he said to me, "Oh, you've read this. I don't need to go into this anyway." I thought I, I didn't. I went over there to read it so he could sent it to New York, and I looked at it, because I had no idea what it was, and then I thought, this is a car? And he said, yeah. <laughs> I said, and it talks. And he said, yeah. I said, okay, you know, and I thought, this is ridiculous. And three weeks later, he calls and said, you know, we sold it. <laughs> Would you do it? I said, well, you know, I'm doing the same elsewhere. He said, we know that. We'll work around it. So my agent said, Bill, you can't turn that down. It's ridiculous. And it's gone on and on and on and on every year, every year. Yes, right. Huge fans. I was just reading something about it where David Hasselhoff, who worked so hard on the lead role, and, you know, he said, I've never met him uh, when I did it. You know, my voice, I just went to a recording studio at Universal and put it down. And he said, how long does it take you? This was David. How long does it take you to do this? I said, oh, 45, 50 minutes. He said, oh, God damn it. <laughs> he said, I'm out there and the sweating and you know, all of that. It was kind of fun. I only met him during the Christmas party. <laughs> uh, you both continue to work, Body. It was a delight to see you on Better Call Saul. Oh, yes. That turned out to be, you know, a really nice experience. I really uh, didn't kind of half wanted to do it, but my agent said, oh, this is a big show, you got to go do it. And so 
Uh, and then I, working with Bob Odenkirk, I really admire him. I really think he's terrific. I think the show, it took me a while to get used to the show because I hadn't watched the other show. I hadn't watched um, Breaking, Breaking Bad. Bad. Mm. No. And so it took me a while to get used to the way it's done. And now I love it. Now I love it. But it was an adjustment because it, they do it very slowly and they deliberately don't go for any kind of obvious comedy. So I, Very be, subtle. Before we let you go, I'd like to ask you both this uh, at a time, and you mentioned the, the situation in Washington, at a time when uh, funding for the arts is uh, imperiled in a lot of ways. Uh, why is it important for us to continue to support the arts, and especially the arts in our schools? I think that... To support the arts? Well, because the, the, the arts is the part of the culture that... That's right. ...that keeps it's, us honest. It keeps us honest. It keeps mm-hmm. us aware of what's going on. It's mm-hmm. very, very important. And hopefully, I don't know. There, I know there's a third of the country that is very supportive of our president. But I just hope that as time goes on, they begin to see that that he, he he's not honest. He's not going to do anything but bad things for us and i hope that they you know don't support him so much i hope they will gradually realize what they have supported bad for our country william daniels bonnie bartlett it is an absolute delight for us to talk with both of you thank you so much for making time for us thank you Mm -hmm. okay thank you and that was so much fun talking with bill daniels and bonnie bartlett here on downtown the podcast what a, what a fun trip into the recent archives for, uh, boy, people who've been doing it for a long, long time. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, Carrie, when you talk to folks like this who, who are legendary people in the entertainment industry, all three could not have been nicer. Yeah, they seem uh, to be happy to talk with us about, you know, their lengthy careers. And, and yeah, it's, it says something to their longevity, I think. Right? Absolutely. Uh, Thanks to the great Carl Reiner, William Daniels, Bonnie Bartlett for joining us, and to you for being with us on this week's edition of Downtown, the podcast. Uh, Next week on the program, we celebrate Brian Wilson's birthday, lead man of the Beach Boys. Uh, We do that with a friend of his, a guy who's written about him, uh, produced specials with him, documentaries about him as well, David Lee, Peabody Award winner, will join us next week on Downtown, the podcast, as we celebrate Brian Wilson's birthday. We'll see you next time on Downtown.